Welcome to the Trinity University Learning Together podcast series. I'm Nathan Cohn, class of 1995, your host. I work at Texas Public Radio in San Antonio, where we sometimes characterize what NPR does as the nation's biggest continuing education course. That's why I'm excited to be introducing this series, featuring faculty, alumni, and other distinguished guests who've established themselves as experts in their fields. As part of the university's lifelong learning initiative designed especially for alumni, this podcast series includes discussions and presentations on a variety of subjects. And today you'll enjoy a conversation on financial success with finance expert Ben Gerwitz, class of 2002. Ben Gerwitz is a certified financial planner with Financial Life Advisors. Today's episode is the second of a two-part podcast series with Gerwitz and will address maximizing charitable gifts and key retirement plan savings decisions. Dr. Bob Scherer, Dean of Trinity University's School of Business, will engage him in the conversation. Welcome to our Learning Together podcast series today with Ben Gerwitz, uh, focusing on maximizing charitable gifts. Welcome, Ben. Thanks for having me. Ben, philanthropy is really an important um, social goal to assist our nonprofits uh, and and really um, help in the development of community issues. But as well, it's important to consider how one can maximize their charitable gifts through their philanthropic uh, goals and endeavors. And so... Tell us a little bit about how you counsel your clients to think about their philanthropy and their charitable giving. Well, um, you know, we sometimes get overly focused on the tax consequences of this stuff, but it really, charitable giving comes from the heart. And it's, there's causes and issues that are near and dear to clients and, and anybody who, who is interested in supporting those. So uh, one of the things I like, uh, the Bill and Belinda Gates Foundation, largest foundation uh, in the in the world, you know they they've sort of said it succinctly: see a problem, find a solution, deliver impact. And I think a lot of people want that with their charitable giving. They want to see a problem, and they want to find the charity that will make the biggest difference and measure those results and make sure it's not money spent on administration and money uh, wasted. So when I talk to clients about their giving, I really want them to think about you have a finite amount of money you can give and there's an unlimited number of wants. And if you don't think through that in advance, you'll make decisions in a vacuum and you'll regret how you allocated those resources. So I I try to have them take a look at a pie, a pie chart. And if you had $100, How much would you list out all the charities that are important to you and then list how you would allocate that $100? And then whatever you can afford to give, you follow that plan because that really allows you to sit down, uh, if it's just you or with your spouse or your family, however, whoever you bring into the decision making and really think about where you want your impact to be. Then once you sort of decide what types of causes are important to you and how much you want to allocate, you really want to make sure that that charity that you're giving money to is going to fulfill that mission in a way that you're comfortable with. And there's tools out there to research charities to see how much they spend, how much ultimately goes to what's called programming, the the charitable cause, and how much is spent on administration. Some charities spend 40, 50, 60 percent of their budget on administration and fundraising. Other charities 
give 90% to the actual charitable cause. And so if I'm thinking about giving money to a charity, I want to make the biggest impact possible. And usually clients feel the same way. So it's really a, um, a strategy of saying what's important to you when you can allocate money, what percentage should go to each charity and then making sure that each charity that fulfills that cause is a good steward of the money. So Ben, how can I actually determine uh, if it's a charity that I want to contribute to or not? Is there a way to research or get information? I know many uh, employers uh, have the opportunity for their, their staff to contribute through the United Way. And if I remember correctly, uh, many times you can select from among a number of uh, nonprofit organizations that United Way uh, contributes to. But what if I have a passion for the environment or for um, a, a particular project uh, in my community? How do, I, how do I get information? What do I do? Where do I go? Well, typically, people will find charities or charities will find people. And what the charity is promoting sounds great. Um, but you want to see the bottom line, how much of the money that you're giving is actually going to go to the charitable cause. And so there are some search engines, um, Charity Navigator and GuideStar, probably being the two most popular ones, that will basically look at financials for charities and then do reporting. So if you're looking for a charity, you can search online for them. But oftentimes you hear about them, you come across something, um, someone brings it to your attention. But I encourage everybody to research a charity, especially before you give significant amount, amounts of money to them, because it really runs the gamut. There's a lot of charities that, that spend a lot of money on administration and fundraising and very little on the charitable cause. So you want to make sure that, that that's being given to the cause that you're, that's important to you. And so I've selected uh, one or more uh, nonprofit organizations that I want to contribute to this tax year, say 2018. Uh, it, how do I know if it's uh, a tax-deductible uh, gift or contribution, donation to this organization. What are what are the criteria? How do I how do I get that information? What kinds of organizations qualify uh, me to um, to take a tax deduction? Well, um, the most common places people besides five hundred one c threes are also churches. And and Ben, uh, what are five hundred one c threes specifically? It's a it's the tax code designation for organizations that have a charitable purpose. And if they qualify as a 501c3, and most charities do, they're allowed to hold assets for investment for a charitable purpose. They have to do reporting every year. Um, and their intent of the organization has to be has to be charitable. So if I know that this organization has 501c3 status, then I can be confident that my gift will be tax deductible. Yes, as long as you receive no goods or services for your donation. Um, that's always a sticking point on the letter you get from the charity. It needs to say some specific language that you didn't receive anything uh, tangible for those for those contributions, including making a tithe or dues to a temple or a mosque or a church. Uh, 
those are charitable contributions also and qualify. Okay. And so I've made uh, contributions this year to, say, three organizations. Uh, what's my next step? How do I uh, take the tax deduction? What amount can I deduct? Uh, what forms do I use? How, how do I go about um, uh, taking and utilizing this tax deduction for the donations I've made? Great question. So on your tax return, charitable deductions are reported as an itemized deduction. And this is going to get a little confusing, but you basically can choose the standard deduction or the total of all of your itemized deductions. So in, in addition to charitable giving, property tax, state income and sales tax, uh, extraordinary medical expenses, unreimbursed business expenses, professional fees, um, mortgage interest, all of those things are added together. Um, and if they exceed the standard deduction, you itemize and can take that total amount as a deduction on your tax return. But if the total of all your itemized deductions doesn't exceed the standard deduction, you take it, take the standard deduction. So if your charitable giving and your property tax aren't as much as the standard deduction, you're really not getting a deduction for that. And the new tax law in particular has made it much harder to itemize. Certain itemized deductions have been limited, some have been eliminated, and the standard deduction has been essentially doubled. So for you to be able to itemize as an individual, you have to have itemized deductions of at least $12,000. And if you want to itemize as a couple, you have to have at least $24,000. So it's much harder to meet that threshold. A lot fewer Americans are going to itemize under the new tax law. So some of the strategies that help deal with that are bunching itemized deductions. And charitable giving, you choose when you give it to charity. Now, you could say, well, go to your church, I'm going to tithe for the next three years. But most people, because they give from the heart, it's pretty difficult for them to, one, know how much they're going to make in the future, how much they are going to feel comfortable giving, and then pay for it in advance, and then not give anything in those subsequent years. Because if you can bunch multiple years of charitable contributions into one year, it makes it easier to exceed that itemized deduction and get a tax benefit and, for the gift. And Ben, you 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 gave gave me the green light to uh, ask questions as we went along, as it got uh, somewhat complex. What is what is bunching actually? So, the itemized deductions as a taxpayer are any contributions, any expenses that qualify that particular tax year. So, if you give money to charity, it's only the amount you gave during that actual year. So if you give, say, $5,000 a year to a charity, 5000 but if you gave three years, it'd be 15000 It's much easier to reach that itemized threshold if you take what I would give in 18, 2019, and 2020 and go to the charity and say, hey guys, I'm going to give you more money now. Is that okay? And they, of course, will say, yes, you can give us as much <laughs> money as you want. And it's important from a practical standpoint to tell the charity what you're doing. Because otherwise, they're going to invite you to every gala that they have. And they're going to send you 
request for more money because all of a sudden they think you've become more charitable. But that's somewhat difficult for people to do on a practical level because it doesn't feel right to give a whole bunch of money one year and then give no money in a subsequent year. So there's something called a donor-advised fund, and it's kind of an intermediate step in between giving a straight charitable gift because you can give that $15,000 to the donor-advised fund, and then that money stays invested in the fund, and you can nominate funds to go to a charity. So you can disassociate when you give the charitable gift to when the charity actually receives that gift. So you could, in that same example, give $15,000 to a donor-advised fund and then give $5,000 this year, $5,000 next year, and $5,000 the year after. But you take the full deduction in the year you put it in the donor-advised fund. And while the funds are in the donor-advised fund, are they gaining interest or... Yeah, they need to stay invested. And so donor-advised funds um, will typically give you portfolio options that you can choose from to keep the money invested. And then you, it's usually in your name or however you want to name your donor-advised fund. And then you can give that donor-advised fund nomination requests, and then they will send money to the charity on your behalf. So if I understand correctly... I want to contribute $15,000 to a charitable organization over a three-year period, but if I set up my donor advice fund and put at least $15,000 in there to, to cover those three uh, individual five-year donations, I can take the full $15,000 deduction in the current tax year but make the contributions over the three-year period. Is that correct? That's correct. Um, and it doesn't have to be 5015 It can be any amount of money. Um, and it doesn't have to be three years. It can be two years or five years. Sometimes people have events where they have a windfall of income. And those are great years to look at this kind of vehicle because you get a maximum deduction in a year where your income is higher. And then you can give that money out how you see fit over time. And you don't have to determine the charity at the time of the gift. You could say, well, I like this charity, but then you can change your mind down the road. So it gives you flexibility to, 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 to make the deduction in, a, in one year and the gift to the charity in a different year. So what if I start my uh, d- donor managed fund? I can't remember the donor advised fund. donor advised fund at $5,000. And in the next year, I want to add 10000 to it. And then the next year, 3000 And then the next year, $10,000 again, based on what I'm able to contribute. Can I do that? And how does that affect the contributions that I want to make to one or more charitable organizations? Well, you're really separating the taxable charitable gift, because that actually happens when you fund the donor advised fund, from giving the money to the charity. Because you put the money in the donor advised fund that's when you get the deduction and it goes to the charity when you make the grant. So you can fund it over multiple years. You can, once it goes in, it's an irrevocable gift to a charity, it's any charity. It has to go out to a charity once it's in the donor advised fund, but you can do 5,000 one year, 10 the next, nothing the year after that. It's completely flexible. And I, I only get um, the tax deduction on the funds going in, correct? Uh, me, meaning that 
if I've contributed 3000 to the uh, donor managed fund this year, I get a tax deduction of 3000 If I do 5000 next year, I get a deduction of 5000 not the 5000 plus the 3000 Is that correct? Right. In the tax year, you give it the amount you give. And if you give 3000 to the donor advised fund, but it grows to 4000 before it goes to the charity, you don't get the benefit of that at growth. That will go to the charity, but you only get credit for, for the contribution. Hello, this is Danny Anderson, president of Trinity University. Thank you for listening to the Learning Together podcast series brought to you by Trinity's Office of Alumni Relations and Development and produced here on campus by our friends at KRTU 91.7 FM. We're so glad you tuned in today and we appreciate your continued support of lifelong learning at Trinity University. Welcome back to the Learning Together podcast from Trinity University. I'm Nathan Cohn. Let's return to the conversation with Ben Gerwitz and Bob Scherer. Uh, Ben, uh, good to be with you again and discuss uh, investment and and, uh, today specifically retirement uh, savings plan decisions. Um, Tell me a little bit and our listeners about what some of the typical misperceptions are about uh, retirement uh, in general and retirement planning in particular? Well, I think traditionally people imagine retirement planning as, or retirement in general as, you don't go to work one day and then you can sit on your front porch and rock back and forth and do nothing. (laughs) Um, But that concept of retirement really is wrong. Um, And retirement, the word, Uh, I almost think should be replaced because very rarely do people stop doing anything and a lot of people become busier in retirement than they were when they were working because now they have the time to pursue their passion. So I really like thinking of what most people think of as retirement as sort of their next act or a pivot in their life. And and it is a big change. Um, People I think underestimate how much emotionally retirement uh, is a difficult transition because they spend so much time preparing for it and not a whole bunch of time thinking about emotionally the things that happen when you retire. As we move ahead uh, and and people are considering this transition uh, from uh, full-time employment to uh, doing other things that may be of interest to them, are are you in your practice or or are you aware of uh, a shift in retirement age uh, from I believe our typical traditional retirement age in the United States has been 65 years old are you seeing clients who are now working on into their 70s and beyond yeah uh, I have clients that love what they do and don't want to stop Uh, clients working into their 70s and in some cases even into their 80s Uh, typically though they'll slow down a little bit and take time to do some other things Um, but but if someone enjoys what they're doing they don't necessarily think of an arbitrary age where all of a sudden I don't have to do it if somebody really doesn't like what they do they are counting down the days that they don't have to do that anymore but I if they aren't thinking about it, I'd encourage them to think about what you want to do with all of that time. We all have to have purpose in life. Um, 
and you can't just sit on your porch and rock back and forth. You have to have something to do, whether it's volunteer work or pursue something um, or work part-time, sort of a phased-in retirement. You know, there is no right answer, but you have to make a conscious uh, decision and effort to figure out what's, what's right for you. All right, so I've decided to retire uh, or to transition, <laughs> as, you, as you noted to us earlier in our conversation. Uh, and I'm uh, 65 years old. We'll take that as the, as the traditional transitional age. And if I turn back the clock to when I started working right after I graduated from college with my undergraduate, from Trinity University with my undergraduate degree, how much would I need to save to retire over that uh, 40, 45 year, 50 year period? Well, that, that runs the whole gamut because a lot of it has to do with what you decided to do with your life. For many people, the traditional pension is not an option anymore. You don't have anything other than a pile of savings, but that's not the case for everybody. People who have civil service or were in the military, school teacher, there's a lot of jobs that you have income in retirement that will help supplement things. But if you don't have that, then obviously you're gonna need to have more money. And the question is, how much money? And again, what do you wanna do in retirement? Some people haven't had time to travel and now wanna travel. Some people in their careers have had too much travel and want to be a homebody. Um, do you want to have a second home? Do you, you know, do you want to support grandchildren? What are what are the goals that are driving you financially? Are going to work back to how much money you need and what are the resources you have available? Um, the typical rule of thumb is you need 80% of your pre-retirement income. Well, I hate rules of thumb because they don't apply in everybody's situation. Some people's expenses are higher, some are lower. Are they gonna to relocate to another state where taxes may be higher or lower than where they are, or the cost of living is different? Um, so it's an oversimplification, and the only way to really know how much money you need is to evaluate and identify what you need money for and how much those, what's a reasonable amount of money to have to be able to supply that level of income for your whole entire life, however long that may be. You know, if we only expect you to live to, to 85, then you don't need as much money, but we don't know how long we're going to live. So it's important to understand how your resources will carry you well beyond 85. The fastest growing group demographically is centarians. Um, I have two grandmothers that are 95, so mm. They hopefully will be entering that, that demographic um, in a few more years. So uh, it, it really is a tough tough answer to say, how much do I need? The rule of thumb doesn't, doesn't apply very often in my experience. Okay. So I've waited till I'm 60 years old to start thinking about uh, how much I need to save to retire. And as you noted, it's a personalized decision based upon one's objectives and goals at the time of leaving full employment and moving on to other opportunities to pursue other projects other activities but what would be the difference uh, for somebody coming later that hasn't done a lot of planning what what's some advice that uh, you as a financial planner might offer that person that hasn't thought much about retirement planning until they're close to the 
age of retirement? Well, the first thing to do in a financial plan is identify what you want, your goals. So what do you envision? Assuming money is not an issue, what do you want retirement to be? If you're 60 and you want to retire at 65 and you want to do certain things, we're starting to build a picture. But there's only three major levers to pull in a financial plan. You can work longer, you can save more, and you can spend less. So if you are 60 years old and want to retire at 65, you only have five more years of savings and you probably can only save so much more. But what are your retirement goals? You could spend less in retirement to hit that retirement goal or you could potentially work longer. And when you work longer, it's always amazing to me how much working to 70 versus 65 makes a huge difference in a financial plan because for that 60-year-old, that's 10 years of savings, not five. And that's five whole years of living expenses which aren't coming off the investment portfolio. So it's just a matter of figuring out what those are and pulling one of those three levers or some combination of those three levers. In terms of those three levers, uh, investing probably plays a pretty good role. Uh, if you're not cutting, if you're cutting your expenses, you might be able to utilize that those funds to invest. If you're not spending uh, as much, you you might be able to to invest some of those funds. Or if you're working longer, and and you don't need all of that that income that you're earning because of other uh, uh, kinds of resources that you have, uh, you might take some of those funds and invest. So where does someone start? With investing, what kinds of investments would one make uh, based upon their age uh, and 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 appetite for different uh, types of risks? Well, so making a decision on on investment starts with risk, because if you don't get the risk amount of risk you can handle and the amount of risk that's appropriate for your your plan, your situation, right, then you're setting yourself up for disappointment one way or the other. You're either going to invest too aggressively and then freak out when we have our next correction in the stock market, whenever that may be, and then be afraid to get back in and harm yourself that way, or you'll be so conservative that you won't keep up with inflation. So it's important to understand your an appropriate risk profile, which is going to give you the highest likelihood of achieving your goals and also is not going to exceed what you can handle emotionally. And if you can avoid, if you can, if you can understand those two, you're much more likely to pick the right investments. And there's a whole world of investments to choose from. Um, there's ways to do it yourself. There are uh, platforms that are very inexpensive to get into the equity markets now. Uh, you can also look to your job, probably the first place. If you have a 401k at work or a 403b, uh, you can set up an account and a lot of the selection criteria is probably available to you through that plan at work and you're getting a tax advantage for participating in those plans. So that's probably the first place you should start. And then you could go and look for an advisor, whether it be uh, a robo-advisor or a human being who can help guide you in that investment selection process. And just, just for clarification purposes, uh, Ben, what's the difference between a 401k? You hear the I hear the terminology used almost interchangeably, but would you talk for a minute just about what 
what these types of plans are and what's the difference between a 401k plan and a 403b plan? Well, they're pretty similar, in fact. Um, 401k plans are typically found in for-profit businesses, but nonprofits can start them too. And, and what it is is it's an implant sponsored by the employer for the employees. And the government in this plan allows the employees to take money out of their paycheck and put it away in a tax-advantaged way, whether it's taking a pre-tax deduction now, getting a deduction off of your income tax now to save, and being able to defer income tax during your whole working life until you start pulling money out, or choosing a Roth 401k where you get no deduction but all the investments grow tax-free. If you were to go and purchase an investment, just I open an account down at the local bank or wherever and invest, everything you do in that investment is taxable. But inside of a retirement plan, you get a tax advantage and asset protection. So uh, in a 401k plan, an individual can save up to $18,500 a year out of their paycheck. And if they're over 50, an additional $6,000 catch up. In addition to what the employee puts away, oftentimes there's a match, meaning the employer has said, well, if you put money away, we'll give you some more money because you're doing that. And so there's an incentive for you to put money away and you can get even more by doing that. And some employers can also do profit sharing, which means we're having a great year, we wanna give more money to the employees, we're gonna make an extra contribution on your behalf. So the employer plans are a great place to save for retirement for a multitude of reasons. Now, if you don't work for a for-profit business, typically you'll find a 403B in a nonprofit. And then just to make things more confusing, you'll find a 457 in governmentals. So if you work for the county or the city, oftentimes they use a 457, which is also very similar uh, to a 401k. They all have the same contribution limits, they're sponsored by the employer, but typically nonprofits and governmentals don't do profit sharing. But a lot of them do do matches, which helps incentivize saving. Ben Gerwitz, thanks uh, for discussing with us today and providing insight on our Learning Together podcast series. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the Learning Together podcast. I'm Nathan Cohn. Today's episode was recorded and produced by Trinity University's KRTU radio station for the Office of Alumni Relations and Development. New podcasts will be released on the last Friday of each month. For more information about our Learning Together podcast series or to suggest a topic for a future episode, please email us at alumnipodcast at trinity.edu.